Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. But today's one of those days where we won't talk about biotechnology. (laughs) Um, I'm talking to you from Tel Aviv, uh, Israel, and I'm here with Dr. Jan Lowe. And we uh, just were attending the MANA conference for global food security, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to her about the innovations that have happened in sweet potato breeding. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lowe. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Kevin. The bottom line is is that your work has been recognized for really solving an important problem, or at least I should say is in the process of solving an important problem. I think it's at the beginning of what will be a really innovative long run. But could you describe for me what the problem is and, and the people who are affected? Well, I work in sub-Saharan Africa. I've been in working in sub-Saharan Africa for over 30 years. And when I first joined as a postdoc at the International Potato Center, I saw that the varieties being grown of sweet potato in the region were white-fleshed, unlike what we have and where I grew up, where all the varieties are orange inside. And the orange represents beta-carotene. And I minored, actually, in nutrition, even though I'm an agriculture economist. And I knew that vitamin A deficiency was a major, major problem among young children in sub-Saharan Africa. And at that period in time, there was a lot of interest in tackling vitamin A deficiency because studies had shown that when children were vitamin A replete, uh, infant mortality, childhood mortality went down 25%. So vitamin A is very critical for a strong immune system, and it's also critical, as most people know, for eyesight. And and I guess from what I understand about for vision, I always think about its role in production of pro-vitamin A um, and in serving as a, as a part of the visual apparatus where it actually receives the photon. But is the vision loss kind of a canary in the coal mine in, in vitamin A deficiency where it's a symptom of a much broader deficiency that maybe we're not really accurately counting how bad this problem is because it's just written off as some sort of, um, you know, someone died rather than uh, a vitamin deficiency? 
That's correct, and that's why vitamin A, along with many of the micronutrient deficiencies, are called hidden hunger. You don't wake up in the morning saying, I feel vitamin A deficient. You wake up if you feel hunger from lack of energy, sufficient energy. And so that when you start having problems with eyesight, they call it night blindness, you stumble at night. That's indicative that it's becoming a very serious problem. But research has shown that even having mild or moderate vitamin A deficiency, where it hasn't advanced to that stage, is also a big risk for health. And uh, I neglected to mention earlier that you work in conjunction with the International Potato Center. And, you know, we talked about the official title and I, and I totally missed it. But you're the principal scientist and a co-investigator, uh, a co-leader of the, um, of the Sasha Project, which is, is on the ground in Africa, but also the Sweet Potato for Profit and Health Initiative. And I really do need to emphasize that because th- this, is, uh, this was the, the initiative that was recognized with the 2016 World Food Prize, correct? That's correct. Um, I, along with two of my sweet potato breeding colleagues, Maria Andrade from Cabo Verde and Robert Marga from Uganda, have been working on this issue for over 20 years. And along with Howard Buis, um, who is from the uh, International Food Policy Research Institute, who also is an expert in biofortification. And biofortification is the basically paying attention to and strengthening the micronutrient content of a staple food. And why is that a good entry point? Well, for rural households, probably 50 to 60 percent of their calories come from staples. So if we can improve the quality of those staples, especially for these major micronutrients, we're helping to tackle a problem that will stay in the food system and help people combat these really serious micronutrient deficiencies. So when we talk about the uh, pervasiveness of micronutrient deficiencies, in this case vitamin A deficiency on the African continent, what kind of numbers are we looking at? And is this more pronounced in specific areas of of Africa or sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, they estimate right now that the prevalence rate among children under 5 of vitamin A deficiency is 48%. That's a major public health problem. And of course it varies by country. In Mozambique, where I did a lot of my uh, evidence-based research, the average vitamin A deficiency prevalence rate was 68%. And you can imagine why. You have a country that was emerging from a civil war, very poor health infrastructure, but the diet diversity was extremely limited in northern Mozambique, where I did this initial research showing that we could, using an integrated agriculture nutrition education approach, increase the intakes of all vitamin A rich foods, but particularly the orange flesh sweet potato, and that would translate into lowering the prevalence rate of vitamin A deficiency. And now we go back to orange flesh sweet potato, or as comes up in your talks, I'll tell the, the OFSP. <laughs> and, um, and sweet potato is, is, is a curious solution in some ways, maybe, I, I don't know, but could you tell us more about sweet potato consumption in Africa, or how many farmers are growing the white flesh varieties or why was this the best place to start with this kind of biofortification effort well the our original thinking was sweet potato is widely grown on a small scale throughout many parts of sub-saharan africa it's a tropical crop it's vegetatively propagated so you just cut off a piece of the vine replanted it and it will grow and what interested me in the particular was in most places it's definitely a woman's crop. It had been pretty well ignored by policymakers. It's very resilient. 
it's known as the crop that is there when the maize fails. And uh, so it's becoming increasingly important in the food system as we enter into climate change. And maize, you know, if you don't plant your maize at the right time, you know, within two weeks of late planting, you can lose 50% of your yields. But sweet potato has flexible planting and harvest time and can really recuperate in many cases from exposure to limited amounts of drought. So it's a very resilient crop. And uh, I think because it was a woman's crop, pretty well ignored for many years. So it took a lot to raise interest among both the donor community, the communities, and policymakers to say, this is a really important crop for human health. Now, the sweet potato came from the Americas, and for whatever reason, it was the white flesh varieties that have no beta-carotene that are dominant in sub-Saharan Africa. So the introducing the orange ones seemed like a no-brainer to me, a marginal change. People already know how to grow sweet potato. It's just making the switch over to a new type of sweet potato and selling it on the health value of that sweet potato. But, but that wasn't so easy, was it? I mean, uh, as I recall, that especially men had a problem with... So overall, there was a question about the uh, texture, maybe, and then there was a question specifically with men and their excitement about a sweet, sweet potato. So tell me a little bit about what the white flesh sweet potato was like and what some of the concerns were culturally is adopting what seemed like a major deviation from a food staple. Well, what's interesting is when we started, you know, people say, oh, people reject the color. But actually, no, they love the color. The issue was what you were saying. It's called texture, and that's the dry matter content. And in the United States, our sweet potatoes are moist. They're low dry matter, 18 to 21%, very easy to mash. But in sub-Saharan Africa, the sweet potatoes that are there are very high dry matter. Um, they're mealy. They're used as a bread substitute. People eat them a lot for breakfast and as part of stews for lunch. So they like really um, uh, mealy, floury sweet potatoes that have dry matter contents, 28% and above. So... In the beginning, when we didn't have resources for really breeding, we brought in the best bets from around the world. And there were some complaints, particularly among adults, that these were too watery. But the children loved them. (laughs) And so we thought initially, well, maybe we can promote it as a children's food. But actually, it's adults that make the decision on what to grow. And children will eat what the adults give them to eat. So that meant eventually we had to convince donors that we really had to invest in breeding in Africa for Africa, all conventional breeding, um, but that it needed to be done. And so one of our, I think, greatest achievements over the years in collaboration with the Alliance for a Green Revolution is to build up a cadre where we now have 12 African countries breeding sweet potato. And that's a, that's a really important point, that this is a case where you're using... Um, multiple levels of germplasm from different places to bring in the genetics. This isn't a genetic engineering feat. This is an old school plant breeding feat. And so how much of African uh, breeding efforts by these by breeders from Africa uh, is involving genomics tools or marker-assisted breeding? Or is this just old school, like, uh, you know, uh, high-intensity selection? Well, let me tell you, we have new tools for the old school. And our new tool that we're very excited about is called the Accelerated Breeding Scheme. And it's basically building on the nature of the vegetatively propagated crop. Usually in the old school, you'd start out and you'd have, you know, when you cross a sweet potato, let's say on average they get 20,000 seed. And each seed is a potential variety. So normally in the old scheme, you'd have one side initially, 
and then you'd move on down after your observational trial, and then eight years later you might have a release of two or three varieties. With accelerated breeding, we make initially in the in the uh, greenhouse we make 12 copies of that seed, and we start out at three sites instead of starting out at one. And like say one site might be really a drought stress site, and another site might be high virus pressure. And then the third site would be good growing conditions. So basically what we're doing, all conventional breeding, we're knocking out a lot of material earlier in the process. We're bringing farmers in to evaluate earlier in the process. So now we're down to a breeding cycle of four years for new varieties coming out after crossing instead of eight years. All accelerated breeding. Now it's a management challenge. You can imagine having lots of material out in different sites initially but we're saving years. And to me, that's a real innovation. We do use molecular markers to help us separate our populations. The other thing we've started doing is hybrid breeding in sweet potato. You don't think of hybrid breeding in a vegetatively propagated crop. Again, it's a new innovation. But the molecular markers let us know that this group of varieties is genetically distant from this other group of varieties. And therefore, when you cross them, you get that hybrid vigor, just like you see in maize. We call it the heterotic increment. And we're getting a little technical term there. But basically, it's saying junior is going to be taller than its parents. <laughs> no, well put. That's a great way to describe it. I guess the other interesting, the other really cool part about this particular project is that you're looking at uh, the breeding being done at multiple sites throughout Africa that not only allow maybe some elite germplasm that maybe performs very well in Mozambique, maybe doesn't do so well somewhere else. So you're able to discover this with this kind of accelerated program. Is that really uh, an important part, is that local adaptation? It's very important because the one thing I've learned over the years is preferences differ. You know, I can have a variety that people love in Village X. I go 10 kilometers down the road and they prefer variety Y. And we have debate among the breeders. There are breeders that say, oh, you should release only maybe one or two. You know, really. And then I have my breeder in Mozambique who releases 15 or 10. And let the farmers choose. Because when you think about it, even in a well-resourced program, at most, I think in Mozambique, we do 60 on-farm trials. But it's a huge country. You aren't really in every environment with every subtype of consumer that you want. And so, yes, out of those 15 released, we'll see over the period of three or four years that six really emerge as really preferred, highly preferred. But that's okay. We believe in giving farmers choice. Oh, that's really great. So this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back with just a, in just a few moments. We're talking with Dr. Jan Lowe, who's the principal scientist at the International Potato Center, uh, also involved in the Sweet Potato for Sweet Potatoes for Profit and Health Initiative and what we call the Sasha Project, or what they call the Sasha, Pro- Sasha Project. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to speak with uh, Dr. Lowe, 2016 uh, World Food Prize Laureate. Or did you say co-laureate or are you? Co-laureate. Co-laureate. Aren't you all just laureates and you can share the title together we can call ourselves whatever we want we're very honored to have gotten the honor well i'm excited to be able to talk to you about this because this is one of my favorite stories and you get to hear the punchline when we come back hi talking biotechers episode 140 is important in that it emphasizes the importance of critically analyzing something very important our own opinions we form opinions and thoughts from the evidence we deem credible Sadly, that tends to be the evidence that's already accepted from people we relate to. 
the folks in our trusted communities. You sometimes hear social scientists think of them as tribes. But in episode 140, I talked to Mark Linus about his new book, Seeds of Science. Now, Mark was not certain about technology to the point where he participated in actively stopping it. To his credit, he stepped back, looked at the data, and changed his mind. The good news is, is that he sees technology with great nuance. He's no fan of companies and not even the rabid tech supporters. But he's a fan of technology that can help people or a planet. And this is the challenge to you. Listen to the podcast and challenge what you believe. Ask yourself honestly, what would it take to change my mind? And if confronted with that evidence, would I have the courage to change it? We live in strange times. I mean, the good news is that the way forward is easy. It's the truth. We need to test ourselves, challenge others, share beautiful stories, read seeds of science, critically evaluate Linus's claims, and share your thoughts on his thinking. The bottom line is, is that we have to constantly test ourselves for self-delusion and ensure that we are objectively thinking about data. Don't be anti-GMO, pro-GMO, be pro-science. Get excited about rigorous tests of claims and share that information. And read Mark's book, and and for what it's worth, I bought mine online and not being paid off by (laughs) Big Linus. I just thought that I appreciated his sophisticated discussion of a topic that is immediately polarizing and polluted by mistrust. If we can talk to each other and, well, talk to ourselves about challenging our beliefs, maybe that's the best way to have a productive discussion and get this technology out to those who can benefit from it. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Jan Lowe, who's a principal scientist of the International Potato Center, about the work that's being done in, in improving the sweet potato, changing it from a white flesh sweet potato to something that's orange fleshed, high in beta carotene. And in the first part of the podcast, we discussed the general project. But now the question is, you have breeders creating this new sweet potato for a whole variety of different environments within Africa, within the continent. How is it being adopted? Well, I think that's the challenging part. And this is, as a research organization, we do research for development. And we're very involved in dissemination and what we call seed system research. Because, as I mentioned before, sweet potato is vegetatively propagated. If you have a cob of maize that has 200 seeds on it, if you have a sweet potato vine, it's going to take you, you know, six weeks to get four copies of that vine. So much slower multiplication rate. So our biggest challenge actually, I thought was the breeding, but now that we've got the breeding accelerated, it's actually getting the varieties out to the farmers. And as you know, in many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, public sector extension has been underfunded. So we've invested in creating networks of what we call decentralized vine multipliers, identifying key farmers that have access to water, where we can train them on how to rogue out Uh, unhealthy planting material and have that available at a more localized level for farmers to purchase or to be involved in public sector dissemination programs. And that is, I think, our key challenge in dissemination is getting the materials out. And we believe in an integrated approach. There are no magic bullets. Really, to get that integration into the young child diet, 
we combine the distribution of the orange flesh sweet potato vines with community-based nutrition education programs. And our research has shown, together with our partners, that basically you need at least about eight months of group-level nutrition education uh, promotions and demonstrations and cooking demonstrations, and you get excellent uptake of the orange flesh sweet potato and the integration into the young child diet. So there are no magic bullets. You just can't hand a person an orange flesh sweet potato and hope for the best. You really work with the mothers to get young child feeding frequency up, how to best prepare it, how to integrate it and feed her child better. And we find that women want to be taking good care of their children. So once we get the systems moving, there's good adoption. Under our initiative, we work with 11 other organizations, and we've now reached 4.5 million households since 2009. Wow, 4.5 million households. Yes, in and, and how many people per household? So we're talking a lot of people who are affected here. It, it varies by country, but I would say in most places, your average household size in the rural area is 5 to 6. So we're reaching a lot of people because not just only the children eat it. In our distribution efforts, we tend to target houses with children under five. But people share sweet potato vines. It's one of its beauties. It's easily shared with your neighbors. And this was uh, in some of the techniques for getting parents to adopt this, and even for children to want this. I, I remember your talk a few months ago. There was a lot of uh, either uh, commercials or advertisement, but even uh, even at like the local football pitch, right? You would have uh, symbols saying like "eat your potatoes" and or "eat the orange potato." Like, what were some of the more innovative approaches that you can tell us about? Well, in Mozambique, we have a lot of um, women wear cloths that they wrap around their as skirts, and we designed an orange one with sweet potato all over it, and the slogan was. The sweet that gives health, because dosa in Portuguese means sweet candy. But this is the sweet that gives actually gives you good health. <laughs> so we try to come up in every country with a slogan. In Nigeria, it's uh, sweet potato for health and wealth. And in other countries, we have different messages, eat orange. Um, and so we really try and look at what the local language is, what is a message that we can come up with that makes sense in the local language, and we build the orange brand. We paint buildings orange, marketing stalls orange, our vehicles are orange. Um, uh, We even have some orange motorcycles running around. T-shirts, obviously, hats, and radio is a very key tool in linking the farmers to where they can get vines. Now, that's really great. So I guess the the next big question is is really the, the most important one. Let me ask you two questions. The first one is, how long has this been implemented where people have had increased access? And then in places where they have access, does it work? Well, we've definitely done a lot of evidence-based studies um, together with our partners. One very important study was led by Harvest Plus called the Reaching End Users Study, where we actually did a... uh, an RCT, this is considered the gold standard, of getting to 24,000 households with uh, the integrated approach of agriculture, nutrition education with some marketing. And we were able to clearly demonstrate the, the uptake and the increase in vitamin A both in the young children and in their mothers. And so those kinds of studies carry a lot of weight, and particularly with the nutrition community, to convince them that food-based methods will work. Now our challenge is really how do you deal with uh, 
unimodal growing areas. So we're doing a lot more work on storage. And again, we try and look at what are the farmers doing and what can we do to improve traditional practice. So one of the things that farmers would do with sweet potato, any kind of sweet potato, is uh, if they're going into a long dry season, they may not harvest all of their crops. And then when the rain starts, it re-sprouts, right? And then they waste the first good month of the rain multiplying that re-sprouted material. So we had a scientist who researched this for four years, trying different substances, etc. And he came up with a method that we call triple S, storage in sand and sprouting. Mm. And so at harvest time, you keep your small but healthy roots. You eat your big roots or you sell them. And you layer them in sand, cool, dry sand, in a bucket and stick it in your house. And you keep it there during the dry season. And then six to eight weeks before the rain starts, you plant it out in a protected bed and water it twice a week. And you can get 40 cuttings per root. So when the rains start, your planting material is ready to go. So we do a lot of adaptive research on how can we make uh, people be able to take advantage of the first rains and grow their sweet potato and really try and come up with a sustainable seed system. That's great. So you're actually showing farmers how to be more productive with this for their own profits and their own uh, enterprise. When you um, look at the children who are consuming this, how does that look? So when you actually do the the tests to determine that there's uh, levels of carotenoids are different, can you really see a difference? You can really see a difference. Women will comment, my child has more energy now. The, when you first see a young child sit down and eat their first orange flesh sweet potato, it's really fun. They just keep eating. At some point, you have to tell the women, actually, you know, stop. They've already eaten, you know, 300 grams. They're going to explode. Um, they, you know, in many of the areas we work, uh, children are very, very hungry. And this is a tasty food. They love the uh, flavor of it. It's a no-brainer. Anytime I want people to invest in orange flesh sweet potato, I take them to a village and say, have them watch the children eat the sweet potato. Moreover, the leaves are great. And in many African countries, they don't know the leaves are also good to eat. The leaves are very high in lutein. And for a dark green leaf, compared to other grasses and, and other dark green leaves, they're very high in protein. So it's a very important animal feed in East Africa. If you chop it up 50-50 with your napier grass for your cow, your milk production will go up 20%. So I always say there's no part of the sweet potato plant that goes to waste. It really is an ideal crop for tropical Africa. That's, re- that's really amazing. And it's so, it's so heartwarming because for years we've heard criticism about biofortification because it's all been done with genetic engineering. Well, not all of it. A part of it has been done with genetic engineering. But the critics have been very vocal about how this can't work to actually change someone's health. But the sweet potato is pretty good evidence that if you can provide the beta carotene, that you know we that it, it works better to provide a staple that's theirs, that's culturally acceptable, and breed to create that, than it is to give them carrots, right? Well, you know, I always say a diversified diet are good. And if your carrots will grow, grow the carrots too. You know, more the more variety in your diet, the better. But carrots often don't grow in some parts of the tropics. Sweet potato does. But we do have evidence, from again, from the Reaching End Users study that demonstrated that uh, the increased intake of vitamin A was associated with the decline in diarrhea um, among the young children. So again, that strengthening of the immune system the ability to fight disease. That's what it's all about, is making families healthier. And, you know, we've captured that in our blood sampling, and our blood work, 
and our dietary work. So I think we have one of the strongest evidence bases for the impact of a biofortified crop on nutrition among children in rural areas. That's just so wonderful, and it really makes me happy that that the promise of this was realized in, in affecting public health. But the best, and I don't know if this was by design or not, but you can tell me, how much of this was designed to actually impact the entrepreneurs who also are benefiting from this? And you've talked about how the sweet potato has been used to create new business enterprises and new opportunities by creating um, either processing or by incorporating it into different food products. And how has that changed things for far- for um, not for far- well for farmers, but also for different entrepreneurs who are looking to be able to. Uh, make money in agricultural products? Well, first of all, our emphasis has really strongly been on rural areas and household-level nutrition and food security. That's been our main emphasis. But we are recognizing in the past five years uh, that African is urbanizing. There's no question about it. They think that by 2030, you know, 50% of the population will be living in cities. So we've been investing a lot in utilizing steamed and mashed sweet potato as an ingredient to replace, uh, partially replace wheat flour and baked products to create new markets for farmers because urban consumers like convenient foods. Um, Urban consumers already are eating a lot of bread and a lot of countries import most of all of their wheat flour. So it's a win-win for governments that want to save on foreign exchange. It's a win-win for nutrition because we're improving the micronutrient content of the breads. And it's a win-win for the farmers who are linked into these market opportunities. It's been a really interesting process of developing these products and opening up these opportunities. But it also gives a chance for people to see sweet potato as a modern ingredient going into foods to make your life better. And, and so tell me about some of the foods that have been particularly successful. I mean, you showed pictures of uh, almost what, what looked like donuts or, you know, or actually donut holes, mm-hmm. which is someone who, uh, who is uh, not familiar with the term asked me today, how can a donut, how can a hole be a thing? <laughs> and so it shows our, 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 uh, our bias. But um, tell me a little bit more about those products and, and maybe a little bit about the Golden Power Biscuit. Well, the Golden Power Biscuit was one of the first products, along with the donuts, that we invested in with a large-scale agro-processor. In fact, the largest processor in Rwanda, which is Uruvitsu Enterprises. And farmers in Rwanda uh, grow sweet potato year-round. They were complaining of lack of market. And we worked directly with the processor in his factory to say, what are products that you think will work? And he was making a 100% wheat flour biscuit that had a lot of sugar in it. And so we were able to replace 43% of the wheat flour with the orange flesh sweet potato and develop a biscuit using modern machinery that had a nice shape and new packaging that made it competitive with imported products because a lot of the local manufacturers now are facing the competition from imports. Now we tested these biscuits to uh, quantify the amount of beta carotene in them so it qualifies as a good source of vitamin A Um, uh, for the people who are buying this biscuit. Um, We had a bit of a challenge at times with the global nutrition community, not within Rwanda, saying, why are you working on a biscuit? You know, people shouldn't be eating biscuits. 
Um, but I think the reality is we believe we're making products healthier and we're creating markets for farmers. And uh, I don't think, um, you know, biscuits are going to disappear from the menu in the near future. But if we can make a healthier biscuit that helps local farmers and particularly women farmers, we we're very explicit in setting up the value chain with our partners that 75% of the farmers linked to the value chain had to be women because they dominate in sweet potato production in Rwanda and it worked so we have income coming into these very poor rural households and they're linked into a market that's going to that's lasted long after the project ended those products are still being sold and so what's next for the entire project? Is it are there any particular highlights, both in breeding or in the marketing side, or possibly in the places where this will now be a new technology available for people? Well, we're really excited in our Mozambique breeding program. Um, as you know, now we're doing cycles of four-year breeding. But for the last uh, eight years, we've been trying to push up the levels of iron in our orange flesh sweet potato. And this year, we finally have one clone that has high enough iron in it that we're ready to go and we're working with a university in Switzerland called ETH which is famous for its bioavailability studies because the next thing we have to do is show that that iron that's in the sweet potato is actually absorbed by the human body and we're going to be running those trials this year it's a feeding trial and if we can demonstrate that that iron is bioavailable I'm going to have the winner product of the year a conventionally bred uh, beta-carotene rich, iron rich sweet potato. So uh, working towards that 2019 World Food Prize? or is <laughs> you have room on I, I think uh, we are quite happy just to have the 2016. It's quite an honor. You know, many, many people work hard in our field and don't get recognized. So we realize it's a very special recognition that we've obtained. And, and it's due to really the dedication. You know, I admire breeders. They stick to it. You know, it's it's a tough job. You don't get your rewards in one year. You don't get your rewards in two years. I always start this story with saying this has been 20 years of really working against people who didn't believe in integrated ag nutrition. And uh, so we're delighted that this year as well, that two people who have been promoting nutrition, Lauren Sadad and David Nabarro, have also gotten the World Food Prize. So it's keeping nutrition on the agenda. It's so critical for improved food systems. Well, I hope you keep an open space on your mantle anyway. <laughs> um, I, I just it's, it's, it, this story makes me so happy because it 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 shows it integ- like as you say it integrates plant breeding, but it's plant breeding to solve a uh, solve a need, and it's targeting plant breeding. And it's only going to go faster as genomics tools become more readily available and more, more uh, prevalent, and information is more prevalent. And uh, I think it's got a great future. So it's just super exciting. If people wanted to learn more about you or the project, where could they follow you either on social media or um, is there a website they could look at? Well, I have a Twitter that's uh, JanLow1. I don't know why it has to be the one, but I guess JanLow was already taken. Um, and then we have www.sweetpotatoknowledge.org. And anybody can get information off that site, but if you register on that site, you can also contribute. This is a community of practice, and it only grows if we grow together. So if you're doing something on sweet potato, please put it on the site. We have a person who coordinates it that makes sure it gets into the right spot on the site, but we really take contributions from everybody working to advance this important crop. And when you say contributions, you're talking about um, scientific contributions, but this must be very expensive research. 
is there a, a mechanism by which people who are listeners can contribute financially to the program? Well, uh, you just write to me. I'll be happy to take your money. <laughs> very good. Dr. Jan Lowe, thank you very much for joining me today. And I really look forward to what's happening in the future in this project. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, write a review on iTunes. Uh, send a check to Dr. Lowe. <laughs> Or, or or CIP or CIP uh, International Potato Center uh, care of Dr. Lowe and uh, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast and we'll talk to you again next week thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.